welcome to Political Traction. Ontario came to the brink last week as parents held their breath and unions showed an unprecedented display of solidarity. In opposition to the government's preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause to force a contract, talk of a general strike began to circulate. But Doug Ford backed down and the temperature dropped, leaving us to ask, what happens now? I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Vanmala Subramaniam, Future of Work reporter for The Globe and Mail. Vanmala joined me today to talk about what's next for governments and unions in Canada. So workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your boredom. This is Political Traction. So Vanmala, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Just so that our listeners can uh, get to the uh, threshold of, of, of knowledge for our call, can you walk us through the negotiations between QP and the Ontario government? What were they asking for and why couldn't the government give it to them? So, yeah, it's one of the most interesting labor kind of disputes, actually, in the last little while. So essentially, QP is the biggest public sector union in the country, but it represents a whole bunch of education workers. And these are school support staff. So they're not teachers. They are people like school custodians, early childhood educators, educational assistants, library technicians, people like that. And in 2019, that was the last time they had negotiated uh, you know, a collective bargaining agreement between both sides. So it was up for new renewal this year. So it expired on August 31st. And QP went into the negotiations asking for what most labor experts agree was a very, very ambitious ask. So they came in saying, we want uh, all 55,000 education workers to get an 11.7% wage increase on an annual basis for the next four years or you know, for the duration of the next collective agreement, so three or four years. And that was met very quickly with a resounding no from the Ford government. And when they said that, they, they, they said, look, we're, the most that we can give you is a 1.5% hike in wages every year for those earning more than 43,000 a year and for a 2.5% hike for those earning less than 43,000 a year. And so this was, a, as you can see, that's a huge difference between what the union wanted and what the government was offering. And then what the union did was they said, we're gonna give you issue um, a five day strike notice. And that's when the Ontario government decided to, and we'll get into this more later, invoke back to work legislation which included the use of the notwithstanding clause, which meant that the union couldn't fight the back-to-work legislation. Essentially, that's what it meant. It overrode it. So a couple of days into the negotiation, the union came down to about 6% increase over the next four years. And even then, the Ford government didn't budge from its 1.5 to 2.5% wage increase. So just to sum it up, they're still in negotiations, by the way. And I think at publishing of the podcast, they might still be in negotiations. Um, so you're basically seeing a situation where a union feels emboldened enough to ask for this much because they, they argue that their workers have been chronically underpaid for years. And the Ford government is not budging at all from its starting position, uh, at least for, you know, it hadn't budged for the last few weeks um, because it doesn't want to set a precedent in future negotiations of other QP employees, public sector employees, um, if they give one group of workers a wage hike, 
unions will use that to demand wage hikes for for other groups of workers. Right. That would set a floor on what other unions would ask for. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And and 11.7% over four years, every, every year, that gets close to a 50% raise. Yes, you're right. So that that is it is very accurate to say that what QP was asking for was something they probably were never going to get. But one thing to remember about labor negotiations, Adam, is that it is very rare that they become this public. So often when unions go into, uh, you know, renewing negotiations for new collective agreements, they keep all these numbers under wraps. And it's very common negotiating tactics in any dispute or, you know, lawyers would tell you this to always ask for something that you probably know you can't get and then eventually meet in the middle. So I think that's why the 11.7% number is a shock to many people, but it's a number that wouldn't have become public if the situation didn't evolve the way it did. I think think anybody who's ever tried selling something on Facebook Marketplace understands the the negotiation tactics at place like you'll have, you'll have people coming in with 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 crazy crazy offers hoping that you'll meet them at some artificial middle. Absolutely, absolutely, you're right. So let's talk about the last few weeks' events. Then, how would you describe the arc of the story and the government's use of Section 33? So a couple of things. First of all, unions use the threats of strike very frequently. Because I cover labor, I get notices all the time from unions that they're about to go on strike over some sort of negotiation. And the right to strike is an entrenched right in the Canadian Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. So the idea that the union issued a five-day notice to strike is very in line with labor relations code and what unions usually do. Now, the Ford government responded in a very, very aggressive way by saying, not only are we going to force you back to work because you've threatened to strike, we are going to impose a contract on you. So that's essentially saying you have to accept this 1.5 to 2.5% wage increase. You have to just accept it and go back to work. And on top of it, we are adding this line into this back back to work legislation, which is section 33, the notwithstanding clause, which effectively says you don't have a right to challenge this at all in any court. This is the first time Section 33 has been used in a labor dispute. It's been used, you know, sparingly, I would say, you know, since the 80s um, in Canada, but not so quickly and suddenly when, you know, just 55,000 workers are asking for a pay raise. It's very rare for a big government to actually use that clause to shut down a negotiation. This is, I think, why people were shocked, because it wouldn't have been shocking if the Ford government had just invoked back-to-work legislation. Governments do that all the time when it comes to especially workers, you know, police workers, um, policemen, sorry, firefighters, frontline workers, you know, nurses. It is not uncommon to see governments do that. There's a whole debate in the world of, you know, between labor relations experts over whether they should be able to do that. But it would have been pretty normal for the Ford government to say, no, when you just get back to work, you guys can't go on strike. Schools have been on and off for the last two and a half years. I'm not okay with this. But he went the extra mile. And that was what triggered kind of an explosion in the labor movement. So then then what happened? Like there was a there was a big blow up in public opinion. And it seems like Early on, uh, the the government was trying to uh, explain the nickels and dimes of the issue. 
um, trying to frame this as we're trying to keep kids in school. But then a, a, an abacus poll came out over a weekend and suggested probably what their internal polling also showed, that they were losing the the, the messaging ground on, on the issue. To- totally, Adam. Um, I, I think so. You know, I think once that happened and once the government two weeks ago invoked that notwithstanding clause, we saw a backlash to it that the Ford government definitely did not anticipate. And that backlash came in the form of unions uniting amongst each other against this specific policy. And I think one of the things to remember is that unions don't always get along with each other. Public sector unions and private sector unions notoriously have disagreements when it comes to the way they negotiate, you know, different kind of um, uh, agreements with government and, you know, public sector employees tend to have higher wages than private sector unionized employees. And so one of the, the turning points to me in this story when when you saw the backlash was a very prominent construction union, the Laborist International Union of North America, LIUNA. They had endorsed the Ford government in May, in the past elections in May, and they basically condemned the Ford government for invoking the notwithstanding clause. And then it kind of spurred all the other construction unions that had endorsed Ford in the election to also say, look, we're not down with this. And the reason why these unions did that is because you have to remember that for unions, being able to negotiate freely and fairly is almost the reason for their existence. And, And once they see a government take away that from them, it almost is like, you're saying that unions don't have power in this country anymore. Well, they just went to the Supreme Court uh, a few years ago, and they they won the right to strike at the at the Supreme Court. So it 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 seems logical that they would they would defend that, whether they were exactly. private or public sector. Exactly, and you know the charter unions do use the charter whenever they back to work legislation is imposed on them to they go to the courts, as you say, and say, look, we. We, section two of the charter says that, you know, we have a right to uh, essentially strike and gather and protest freedom of association. And you are taking away that right from us. You can't just do that on a whim, you know. So I, th- I think that's kind of what brought the, u- the the union movement together. And when the Ford government saw that, so that was the first the couple first few days, you saw all these construction unions in issuing statements. It was quite e- quite interesting. And then the, this movement started building. You know, you saw a call from Unifor, UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, two big private sector unions, saying that they would also attend rallies, support the education workers going on strike, and that sort of shocked the Ford government in the way, in a way. You, and you even it, saw uh, Unifor uh, standing on stage with the Canadian Labour Congress. And and from what I understand, they don't, they, they don't like each other on the best of days. A- a- exactly. So you, you basically saw unions, Unifor used to be part of the Canadian Labour Congress, just to deviate right. a little bit. And they had a falling out over a, a, spe- a specific issue that might be too complicated to get into. But then they, they haven't been on great terms since 2018. And then you saw them coming together because of this, because of these QP workers. So, and then the other thing you pointed out, Adam, was interesting because 
I think what also did it for the Ford government was the Abacus poll. So Abacus released this poll, I think it was maybe on the Thursday or Friday before uh, workers were about to go on strike. And the poll said that more people actually supported the union's position than the government's position. Effectively, people saw that the Ford government had overreached. Um, And I think they eventually decided to walk back that legislation. They revoked it, uh, or they're in the process of revoking it, uh, because public support was not with them, and they saw that in the numbers. So that that was actually a very interesting turn of events. So do you think this was a misread by government going into the issue, or was it a winnable strategy lost on fumbled execution? I think it was a misread of, of government and possibly uh, a lack of, of smart strategy, but that, that stemmed from the misread. And I think specifically the Ford government strategy was naive because it did not understand the history of the Canadian labor relations system and how unions will come together when it's an existential threat that is in front of them, which is essentially the use of the notwithstanding clause to take away any right they might have to strike, right? So I think that was the part that, you know, the Ford government didn't anticipate. And they thought that they would have the support of parents who were, you know, rightly so upset that school might be disrupted because they've been in and out of these disruptions for the past two and a half years. And I think the 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 calculation the Ford government made was, okay, well, we're gonna, people are gonna get frustrated because of the strike and we have that support. So we're gonna be able to get them to accept our offer of, you know, between 1.5 to 2.5%. But that was all, you know, something that backfired on them. And just one last point, Adam, which I think that the poll data, you know, showed was quite interesting. The Abacus poll was that I think people understood that these group of education workers were uniquely underpaid. And if I just briefly walk through the numbers, compared to public sector workers in Ontario, they have seen wage increases at half the rate these particular group of workers. There are reasons for that. Some people are theorizing that it's because they are, you know, low-wage jobs, traditionally underappreciated, mostly women. Um, You know, they're they're people who just take care of your kids who are between four and six. They're not teachers, so they're traditionally not seen as high-wage earners. And I I think people started understanding that these group of workers were really important, but had been chronically underpaid. And so that added fuel to the fire in a way. We almost came close to a general strike, if you believe what some of the uh, some of the unions were were calling for. And we haven't had one of those in Canada in just over 100 years. What were you hearing in advance of that? And what would it what would it have looked like? Yeah, so um, that that very, very interesting question. There was definitely uh, going to be a general strike. And I heard that from sources at unions. Uh, You know, we reported that out also. Uh, A whole bunch of media outlets got the tip that essentially workers had been on strike for one day on Friday and and unions were all going to gather together, all unions in the country and, and, you know, labor federations were going to gather together and make an announcement on the morning of November 7th that today, November 14th, we're recording it on the 14th, they were going to call for a general strike of all workers, unionized workers in the province, which would include things like shutting down parts, um, you know, 
shutting down auto plants, things that would seriously affect the economy. So that was actually going to happen. And before that happened, the Ford government conceded. They organized a press conference an hour before labor leaders were going to announce the general strike. That was November 7th, last Monday. I remember that very clearly. And they walked it back. They said, okay, we're going to revoke Bill 28. And they did not say why. And then when we heard from labor leaders, we found out that there was immense pressure on them to walk it back or face the threat of a general strike. Let's take a quick look at Quebec, uh, which have also used the notwithstanding clause recently. When the CAQ used Section 33 to ban religious displays for public sector workers, it was mostly criticized for being discriminatory on racial grounds. But it also raised the ire of unions. That said, nobody came close to calling a general strike. Is the only difference between the two provinces in these situations uh, a deference to sovereignty? I think so. I mean, you know, Quebec has used the notwithstanding clause more than other provinces. They used it also in 2022, you know, against uh, to support a law strengthening the use of French in the province. But I, I don't know if I would say it's a question of sovereignty. I think these two these two incidents were very, very different. One, one thing about the education workers strike in Ontario is that it was something that threatened to shut down the entire public school system. So the impact of it on just someone who might be, you know, politically apathetic, not following the news at all, could be felt. Whereas I think in 2019, the law that prohibited state-affiliated employees from wearing religious coverings in Quebec, that was more of a specific incident that maybe didn't have such a widespread uh, impact on people. So they didn't care about the use of the notwithstanding clause as much in that case. That, that would be my theory. But one thing is a fact, though, there has never been a use of the notwithstanding clause in a negotiation of, between two sides off a, just a regular collective bargaining agreement. It seems like the current crisis around Section 33 has passed. You mentioned the government has backed down. But unions and civil liberties activists can still point to it as a threat. And there was a whole lot of conversation over the past week about the notwithstanding clause itself and its appropriateness. I expect that now that the, the, the acute crisis has passed, those conversations will be deferred and and people will move on. Um, does the government's reversal on it make it less likely that a government will try using it proactively again in the same way? Uh, I think that depends. Um, I think that governments have seen, government provincial governments have, because the federal government made it very clear that Doug Ford had overreached with the use of the notwithstanding clause. But I think that, let, let, let me answer the reverse question, actually. Sure. If, if the notwithstanding clause in this particular back-to-work legislation had not been revoked, I think what would have happened is other provinces would have copied using it in labor negotiations. And the reason why I say that is because we're in a very unique moment in the labor movement where, because of a confluence of economic factors, specifically inflation you know, people feeling burnt out and having overworked frontline workers over the pandemic, you have an emboldening of unions getting wage increases that we've not seen for a long while. Inflation is a big part of it. And in order to counter that, I think that 
provinces would not have hesitated to use the notwithstanding clause again because they have never had to, you know, in decades to confront unions asking for wage increases that are more than, say, you know, one to two percent. So to answer that question, then your, your earlier question, revoking the bill does kind of calm things down in a way. But it's an interesting experiment because it suggests to governments that, hey, you do have this legislative provision that might be unique, but it 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 can be used, you know. And so it remains to be seen what happens. But I think we're going to see a lot of quite protracted uh, disputes between labor and employers over the next little while. Absolutely. You mentioned the inflation pressures on the on the bargaining side, on the on the side of the unions and and the the, the negotiators. But on the government side, and and you know, putting my Tory hat on, this seems like the beginning of a of a recursive loop that could really diminish our ability to handle inflation. Where if you start seeing increased uh, expenditures for public sector payroll, and then the private sector tries to keep up, all of a sudden, everybody's making a ton more money. That seems to put throw a bunch of fuel on the fire that they're trying to damp out. And I, I would imagine that if you talked to Minister of Finance, instead of uh, Minister of Education, that that would be what they would what they would say. I'm surprised that I didn't hear them make that argument, although I'm not sure whether it would have been effective. Right. So you're talking about the wage price spiral, totally. So that is that that's been used by by governments and even the Bank of Canada to say, you know, we need to actually uh, slow the economy down so that unemployment goes up a little bit so that we are not in a situation where we have a tight labor market and we're giving people wage increases that they haven't seen for a while, which will then induce them to spend more, which would then contribute to inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think a couple of things about that is, first of all, you know, if you look at how across the country, you know, in, in the labor force on average, so this is every sector, unionized, non-unionized, you are seeing wages increase. So you are seeing wages go up by, in October, it was 5.6% year over year. And the this is a wage increase percentage point that you haven't seen for a while. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, workers went through the pandemic. And this, this is more of a sociological argument, but they, they did emerge from it realizing what work means to them or what it doesn't mean to them. And so you're seeing sort of an emboldening of workers in a way where they are not willing to tolerate certain working conditions or certain wages, which is adding to them demanding higher wages. And I, and I, I believe at least, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but I've covered the space for over a year now, I do believe you're seeing wages increase and the tight labor market persist also because people are not willing to take on jobs that don't pay them well enough where they just work too many hours. I mean, one of the biggest gaps we have in employment right now is in the food services sector where you just can't can't find people to work at bars and restaurants and even right. food factories, food manufacturing factories, things like that. And one of the big reasons for that is because the conditions were so poor. So the the argument from the other side, from the non-Tory side, like, you know, the leftist economists would say, let the economy go through a period of low unemployment. So wages will necessarily go up to what they should be. 
And because workers were underpaid for so long, it's not like those additional wages are going to spur spending in a way that it hasn't in the past. Right. They'll just pay down their credit card debt. They're exactly. not going to go out and buy <laughs> buy cars and, and dishwashers. Yes. yes. And there's a count, uh, another argument to that is, well, you've seen corporations because of quantitative easing for, you know, the last decade, you've seen corporations accumulate record profits that's been money pumped into the system that we hadn't seen, you know, for so long. And so that money, corporate spending has been a big reason why we are in a period of inflation. This is a debate. It's an ongoing debate amongst economists. So you know, it depends what, what what you feel about it. But I think the the wage price spiral argument against raising workers' wages is not going to turn out well because I think sentiment of workers themselves has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And and don't consult with the economists on political communication <laughs> or, or or public health exactly. figures for that matter. So this seems like one of the most galvanizing moments for Canada's labor movement in recent history. How will they try to keep that momentum going? So I think uh, one of the things that I noticed in the data is that there are many, many workers that are seeing their collective bargaining agreements expire. So in Ontario, just to give you a sense of it, amongst public sector workers over the next six months, you're going to see 300,000 public sector workers be at the bargaining table. Uh, represented by their unions. So I think the cohesiveness of the labor movement and how emboldened they feel can sustain itself for the next six months when these agreements, because we have a whole bunch of big agreements coming up. The the question that I, I don't have an answer for, but I'll be watching out for is how much does inflation have to do with the ability of unions to ask for more money from employers? And I'm talking about private sector employers here too. And that is right now the Bank of Canada is using all the tools that it has in its toolbox to cool inflation. We're seeing those numbers come down a little bit. So some people argue that this window that the labor movement has to negotiate higher wages for employees is quite limited. And as soon as we see inflation come down to, say, you know, between two and four percent, that window will we'll, we'll kind of close. Ben, uh, ben Miller, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Zussi and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Holden Wine. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>